Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. My friends, last week we showed what these depths of Satan are, and who are these people who are dragged into these satanic depths? Included in these is every sort of heresy of Gnostic dimension, heresy or club or organization, call it what you will, one of these being Freemasonry. We showed with the help of their own documentation in many ways that Masonry is a child of Gnosticism. This heresy of Gnosticism is condemned by the Lord and the same holds true for Theosophy and there's a great deal of Theosophy in Masonry as well. All these things were classified by the Lord as the depths of Satan and unfortunately many of the victims happen to be baptized Christians. These Christians in a final analysis will not only blaspheme the chrism of the Holy Spirit but by their rebellion little by little as they progress through these numerous initiations they become more and more polemic they develop an animosity against the church the mother church which gave them rebirth which made them alive spiritually and now they orchestrate all these evil schemes against her it is common knowledge how masonry thinks about the church if it were possible they would never wish to lay eyes upon a single Christian. I remember, my friends, many years ago I was a teenager and I witnessed this with my own eyes. I will never forget it. A Masonic book fell in my hands. It belonged to a neighbor of ours. He had died. He died rather young. And his mother, who was illiterate, began to distribute away his books to the neighborhood children. She had no use for them because she could not read or write. So she was kind enough to give one of these books to my mother. She said, please give one of these books to your son since he's in school and he knows how to read. She was illiterate, but she was a very nice woman. We lived next door to these people. We were quite close to them, and we never suspected that her son could have been a mason. I began to read this book, being that I was quite aware of the subject. I had read about this subject in the book of the great professor Panagiotis Trambelas, I read his book when I was about 16 years old, so I was somewhat informed. I remember reading our neighbor's book thoroughly, and in the beginning of a chapter, on the upper left corner of the page, there was a certain symbol, and it said, if the Christians only knew what this symbol meant, they would burn us alive. I read this with my own eyes, and I remember taking this book to one of the, of the friends of the deceased. I was somewhat upset by all this, and uh, I told him, look at this. I said, I could never have imagined that our neighbor was a mason. The moment he saw that book, he grabbed it from my hands and got rid of it. I don't have it. It's gone. Just to show you how these people think, how the masons think. 
But we saw this in practice as well, how they turn against the Church of Christ, precisely because masonry is a religion. And what religion? Demonic. Of course, every religion outside of Christianity is demonic and a fabrication of the devil. However, this stands even more true for masonry, uh, being that it was classified by the Lord as the depths of Satan. So you can imagine how these people must feel about Christianity since their religion is militantly opposed to Christianity and the Christians, but to all those who stayed immune from these doctrines, those who stayed close to the bishop, the Lord points out, to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, all those who did not go astray, all those who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say. So now the Lord addresses the rest. He first turns to those who were carried away from the woman Jezebel, the symbol of apostasy and demonization. And now he turns to the faithful. To you I say, the rest, the few, those of you who did not go astray, to you who have stayed, I am speaking to. One thing is for sure. We will always have a number of faithful that will stay true to the Lord. And this number will represent the Orthodox Church, which will always stay Orthodox, true to Christ, despite all of the adventures of its ark despite all its misfortune in the ocean of history. Surely she will be comprised by the rest, all those who remain, the stable, the true Christians, those who do not become influenced from the various winds and waves of every season and the craftiness of the evil people who are always ready to hold the funeral of their spirituality. They will always be the remnant, the rest, the remnant, those who do not lower their neck and bend their knee to the various forms and issues of the false god Baal. And let's see what the Holy Scripture says on this. St. Paul writes to the Romans, chapter 11, 4, 5, I left for myself, says God, 7,000 men who did not bend their knee to Baal. Likewise, therefore, and in this our time, there's a remnant according to grace. St. Paul, while writing his epistle to the Romans, he remembers that old incident in the Old Testament, in the adventures of prophet Elijah in the north kingdom of Israel, during King Ahab's reign with the monstrous woman Jezebel, the prototype and herself a victim to her own idolatry, because in reality, behind her was the devil. The people were carried away to worship they were led to worship Baal. And the prophet, full of pain and grief, turns to God and says, Now, Lord, I'm all by myself. I don't see anyone else. I'm the only one that worships you. They all worship Baal. Now, Elijah was a prophet, but God did not reveal this to him up to now. But now he gives him this information. No, Elijah, you're not alone. Don't think that you're the only one. It is the same pain that we often feel when we look about and we ask, where are the Christians? Do we have true Christians today? Who will be saved? Yes, Christians do exist. And now God reveals to prophet Elijah, telling him, 
7,000 men have remained faithful to me. These did not bend their knee to Baal. And if the men alone were 7,000, now if you would include their families, wives, children, you will see that the number rises to as many as 50,000 people in the north kingdom alone who were faithful to God. Now they did not dare to come out in the open because they would be killed instantly. But the important thing is that they remained faithful to God. So St. Paul writes to the Romans now, even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. The same thing holds true here in Rome. In that sinful Rome, which will stand in history as the symbol of the new Babylon. And let's remember this as we advance with our study. God willing, we will see the term Babylon to be used. The great prostitute who became drunk, drunk from the peoples of the earth with her fornications and adulteries, with her wine of adultery. And this is Rome. This is a symbol. Rome was idolatrous back then. And inside this most sinful city, the letter to the Romans is sent. In a city ruled by Nero, and the apostle writes to the Christian, my beloved Roman Christians, just like back in the time of Elijah, even now there's a remnant. You are the remnant according to the election of grace. You are the remnant. My friends, now I feel that it is my turn to tell you something. Do we have the feeling that we belong to the remnant? Do we have the confidence the information that we belong to the remnant of the church. And if we do, will we continue to belong? Is it possible that at some time of weakness, when our self-interests will be at stake, will we, will we break and fall apart? Do we know that few will remain true when the Lord comes back again? The remnant will be saved. Let's understand this very clearly. The remnant will be saved. St. Paul is very clear on this, very specific, that only this remnant will be saved, and this should not shake us up, but it should strengthen us. We only need to belong to this remnant. We must develop the confidence and the conscience that we are members of this remnant. To be more practical about this, when you see that most people around us are baptized Christians, unfortunately baptized without any consequence at all. But then again, weren't the, weren't the Israelites the people of God? Inside the people of God, there was also a remnant, a remnant, if you will, during the years of Christ on earth. When Christ was born, there was a remnant. The remnant always exists, the rest, the few. Now, who were the members of this remnant during the years of Christ? And please pay attention to this. All those who were accepting the prophecies and their true interpretation. Simeon, the God-bearer. Anna, the prophetess. Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of the Theotokos, of course. Uh, Joachim and Anna. The families of the apostles. All these were the remnant that was anticipating the coming of the Messiah correctly. And this is precisely why they accepted him. 
In the Gospel of St. Luke, we find a significant point on this where prophetess Anna would say to those entering the temple to worship, the Messiah came. But Anna would say this only to those who held the correct perception about the coming of the Messiah and spoke about him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So she only spoke to those who had the right idea about the Messiah. She would tell only them the Messiah came. He was born. He came here to the temple. This is fabulous. Anna the prophetess became the forerunner before the forerunner. This widow of 84 years, the one who had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, etc. So let's digest this very well. The Orthodox, the true believers, will always be a minority. This should not shake us up. Let's not be influenced by the masses around us. Let's not say, look at how such and such person is doing, how they live. It does not matter that we are all baptized Christians one way or the other. A few will be saved. We must also mention that this remnant may exist even within the ranks of the priesthood. This remnant exists in all areas. Didn't the priesthood go astray even during the times of Israel? When Israel was falling and was influenced by the neighboring nations, weren't the Levites also involved? The Levites had fallen miserably. Not all of them, not all of them. Those who refused to go astray moved to the South Kingdom. They left the North Kingdom. The South Kingdom was still maintaining the worship of the true God. So now assuming that we have this inside information, that we are members of the remnant of our times, then let's listen what else the Lord has to tell us in his epistle. Chapter 2, verse 24. I will put on you no other burden, but hold on to what you have until I come. These are profound words, very meaningful words from our Lord. Let's pay attention to them. What is this thing that we have which we must hold on to? What do we need to hold on to? It is his gospel. Hold on to what you have, and I will place no other burden on you. I will not write any additional gospels for you. This is the only one, the gospel. This gospel I will put in your hands, and I am calling it a burden. It is the faith of Christ. But the entire faith of Christ, unadulterated, pure, was handed down to us by the apostles and our church fathers. But did we even consider, my friends, the value of this treasure handed down to us by the Lord? What it may be. Did we ever think how invaluable this treasure may be? As Orthodox, we have this precious treasure and if we made the effort to appraise this treasure, we would find ourselves speechless from shock in front of this overwhelming volume of this priceless treasure. And if we could even come close to a true appraisal, how can we appraise something totally invaluable and priceless? But we will attempt a quick cross-section of this treasure so we can somehow remind ourselves of its net worth 
And first and foremost, we have the Holy Scripture, an awesome treasure in itself, the Holy Scripture. If we would even come to realize what the Holy Scripture is, especially the New Testament written in our own Greek language, this is a great privilege for those of us who happen to be Greeks. We also have the divine liturgy, our divine liturgy through which we have the sacrament of Holy Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ, the very flesh of the Master, which makes us one body and one blood, the seven ecumenical councils and the topical councils with their church canons, which regulate the ethical life and preserve the dogmatic health of our faithful. These holy canons serve as a protective guardrail to keep us from falling into delusion and the loss of our salvation. Fourth, we have the precious writings of our church fathers and especially the writings of the Greek fathers of our church. We have monasticism with its infinite blossoms which gave our church over 80% of its canonized saints. As you read, you will see that by far most of the saints of our church lived the monastic way of life. Monasticism, which is highly misunderstood today, even by Orthodox clergy. But this is not surprising because the devil will always attack anything that has great value spiritually. We also have our unrivaled and incomparable sacred services. These services magnetized and unorthodox of Europe. The blacks in Africa, my friends, are attracted to our faith with the splendor of the divine liturgy alone. And if you will, we have even historical evidence for this. Russia embraced Orthodox Christianity during the 10th century. Rome was very active and attempted a number of times to influence the Russian people towards Catholicism. Rome exercised very powerful means to proselytize Russia and the entire Western world. However, Russia became Orthodox and under the authority of the Patriarch of Constantinople. What caused this? Would you believe the splendor of our divine liturgy and Byzantine music? They were dazzled. They said, heaven is present here. Our services have celestial beauty, sacred beauty. If we only knew the essence of all these church services, which in their order are nothing less than a 24-hour incessant liturgy and doxology to the Holy Triune God. Seventh, we also have our dogmatic iconography. The West paints as well, but that's all it does. It paints nice paintings. However, our Byzantine dogmatic iconography is something extraordinary and unparalleled, something awesome. We also have our plentiful published and unpublished hymnography. Who could ever attempt to go to work for hundreds of years to extract all this wealth from libraries and museums, not only in Greece, but in the entire world? The museums of Europe and America are laden with this great volume of unpublished works of the Church Fathers. Who could attempt to ever do this? unpublished volumes upon volumes of this amazing wealth. And this does not, does not take into account that 
these are but a fraction of all those that perish from the elements of time, men cause destructions, wars, fires, etc. We also have our Byzantine music, but in order to cover the entire Orthodox world, I would say our holy ecclesiastical music, Byzantine or not, because some of our Orthodox brothers have very holy music, even though it may not be Byzantine. But it is holy music, a music that inspires. It is not the effeminate music of the West, the operatic sounds of the West, which may be a fine art, but it does not suggest piety and holiness. Man does not ascend, does not feel heaven with that music. It may be pleasing to the ear, enjoyable, uh, it may satisfy the aesthetic and artistic desires of a person, but it does not bring to contrition. Orthodox music, on the other hand, inspires, it makes manifest the fear of God, the glory of God in a truly orthodox way. We also have the martyrs, the saints, the holy ones. Finally, we have their holy relics, a precious treasure. All of the above that I just summarized represent the Orthodox Christian Church. And now we need to think about the following questions. Is it possible that this treasure can be looked upon as questionable by even some Orthodox? Number two, is it possible for this treasure that we refer to to be looked upon as excessive and unnecessarily heavy and in need of some trimming? And number three, is it possible for this treasure to be looked upon as antiquated and impractical, thus needing to be reevaluated and readapted according to the modern trend. Unfortunately, my friends, all these three questions have been posed in our times. And as far as the first question goes, is it possible to question the validity of this treasure? Certainly. And who are those who question this treasure? These are the atheists, the materialists, the conscience and unconscious enemies of the church. These people question this treasure. They always have questioned this treasure. And all those people who do not want to see or hear about Christ or Christianity. All those people who can't wait for the opportunity to attack Christ, his followers, and his church. And this is something that always took place in the past, present, and future, and this will go on until the end of time. As to why? Well, quite simply because behind them is the devil, behind the enemies of Christianity is the devil, forever trying to uproot the church of Christ, forever trying to destroy the church. Now, who are those pertaining to the second question, those that are sharpening their clippers and scissors, always ready to clip and trim, to cut the divine liturgy because it may be a little bit too long, to readjust the ethics of the gospel because it does not speak to modern men, to cut out some of the commandments, especially like do not commit adultery, or in its broad sense, including not just adultery, but exonerating fornication, like couples living together, premarital sex, and extramarital relations. We also need to make room for the homosexual couples, 
and all the ethical fabrications of the 20th century. We must reconsider and we must serve the needs of all these Christians. And you want to know something tragic? This is happening around us. It is a daily routine in some of the non-Orthodox Christian bodies, but how long would our own hierarchy stay immune? And please allow this translator's note. These studies, keep in mind that these studies were completed about 20 years ago. In 1998, a Greek Orthodox bishop interviewed by Penthouse magazine, believe it or not, stated that premarital relations help the stability of marriage. Thank God that he was rebuked heavily by a number of other bishops and ladies, but he was not defrocked. He was slapped on the hands lightly. And this is the end of the translator's note. But the dilemma of the Episcopalians and Methodists and some of the other Protestant offshoots is based on this premise that the Christian gospel is no longer relevant to the needs and lifestyle of the men of the 21st century. Unfortunately, this spirit of humanism and scholasticism is infecting our church leaders, clergy, and laity alike. Which one? Those who desire to trim the treasury of our church, to synchronize it, only because they have fallen in the heaviest and suicidal sin of spiritual paralysis or sloth. Spiritual slumber, the slumber brought forth from the secular and cosmopolitan spirit, and this spirit makes Christ and his expectations seem unbearably heavy. So they would like to trim and cut. Do you understand this, my dear listeners, that today our Christians suffer? We all suffer, myself included. We all suffer from a continual spirit of sloth. When we don't have the appetite and the interest to live spiritually, we don't have the motivation and the urge to climb spiritual ladders, but we drag our feet. We are limited to some crab walk, some slow horizontal movement, unwilling to climb. Tell me, isn't this characteristic of the heavy sin of spiritual paralysis and laziness? Slumber for spiritual matters. But this condition causes great concern for St. Paul who was saying today in his epistle to the Hebrews in the second chapter, as we read in church today, if every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How can we escape if we neglect the gospel of salvation? So we will not escape, not because we were enemies of the faith, but because we took our gift of salvation for granted. We took it lightly. But why are we neglectful? As you can see, this neglect is a heavy sin, and we're all infected today. And this neglect leads to spiritual paralysis. So when our people become heavily infected by this plague, you can hear them say, 
why must the liturgy be so long? Why was the sermon so long? And I often hear this argument. Today, people are very tired. People are kind of exhausted today, so we cannot expect them to stay in church for hours. So people are tired and exhausted today, eh? They are not tired when they run to football games, driving a couple hours each way and spending three, four, five hours in fields and in traffic jams. They are not too tired to scream and shout for hours at different parties and dances. They are not too tired to drive six to eight to ten hours to the nearest ski resort or the nearest shore. People run, they run all over creation for their skin, and they don't complain about being tired. So they only get tired in church if they happen to stand for an extra hour. This is what we mean by heavy spiritual continual paralysis. Pertaining to the third question, and about who are these Orthodox who are saying that many aspects of our faith are Paleolithic, uh, plain old, and we don't necessarily have to cut them, but we should readapt them. And these people, my friends, who consider the treasure of Orthodoxy antiquated, and they seek renewal and modernization and progress, etc., they also have been possessed by the spirit of sloth and the secular spirit, but they try to hide it. They don't come out to say that we need to cut, but they try to change the usefulness of the church to offer more to today's men, like the church is something subjective to time and season and can be rendered less or more useful according to the time. But let's stay in these last two categories regarding the treasure that the Lord placed in our hands. Hold on what you have until I come back. About the first question, we really do not need to address because these people are atheists. They do not believe. They are materialists. And there's really no room for discussion. We will only address the last two categories of Christians who either want, want us to trim or cut and renew Christianity since it's getting old. My friends, Please pay attention here because Christianity in its entirety is one paradosy, one tradition. When we say paradosy, we mean everything that was handed to us under Christ, the apostles, and their disciples, the church fathers. Now this very tradition is what Christ tells us to hold on to. This very tradition is what Christ tells the bishop of Thyatira, hold on to what you have until I come back. I gave it to you, and you must keep it on altar, the way I gave it to you until I come back, until my second coming, my second presence. But the church is the very body of Christ. It is Christ himself. Consequently, what is paradosis, or holy tradition? Christ himself. But can Christ change? Can he get old? Does Christ have some members that can be discarded according to someone's personal opinions or intuitions? Whenever we come up with a bright idea, St. Paul declares in Hebrews 13:8, Christ is the same today and tomorrow and forever. 
Christ never changes. He's the same always, pure, whole, undivided, perfect. In other words, Christ possesses the past equally with the present and the future. So what renewal, we may ask, can Christians possibly make? Christ is presented in his entirety by the Holy Scriptures. Every alteration of the Holy Scriptures is also an alteration of Christ. Then we ask, what is the bottom line of this renewal mania or the need to trim, to trim or eliminate? Trim what? The holy canons, because they are very bothersome today. The divine liturgy, which may also bother many people who find it dry. And they have the audacity to speak about charismatic and innovative liturgies. Change our iconography, which our people do not even take time to understand. Truly, where's the cause behind all this renewal mania today? Listen, my friends, and always try to remember this. Everything that we referred to previously, all the treasures that we pointed out, all these happen to be the most accurate expression and interpretation of the entire and most accurate Holy Scriptures of the whole flawless and unalterable Christ. So you cannot cut anything. I will say it again so it can register in your minds. With simple words, iconography, how can you cut or add? It expresses Christ perfectly. The same holds true for the holy canons, dogmas, the divine liturgy. All these express the one Christ, pure, perfect, was presented by the holy scriptures. Because all these things that I mentioned to you previously are the expression and interpretation of the holy scriptures of the one and only Christ. But when they insist, those that insist, to renew the church, to renew Christianity and the gospel and the tradition, to renew all these, claiming that Christianity is old and dry, we would have to tell them that Christianity has not aged. Christ is not old. The Christians have withered. The faithful are languishing. Now, why have our Christians withered? That's an entirely different subject. My friends, our Christians today have withered miserably. And when someone dries up, when someone withers, then he blames everything found outside of him. But in reality, the cause of the spiritual paralysis is inside of that person. We are to blame, not Christianity. Christianity does not need to undergo a renewal. We need to be renewed. So when we claim to want a renewal, this renewal must start inside of us and not with the tradition of our church. And if you ask, how can we acquire this true spiritual renewal? We will succeed at this only if we approach the tradition of our church pure, unadulterated, without reductions and without amputations and without modernizations. This has been the lifelong struggle of the church. The church has not been narrow-minded through the centuries. The church fathers were not narrow-minded when they were struggling to keep their holy tradition pure and unblemished. They did this precisely because they were well aware of the fact that from this flawless and pure tradition, true salvation will come forth. And just to bring up an example along the way, Every time people in our days attempted to renew a few things, they ended up looking rather ridiculous. We had a number of experiments here in Greece as well. 
These experiments are far more prevalent in Europe, of course, and we read about some of these things in the newspapers and we pull our hair out. We often hear some of our modern thinkers, the offering of the divine liturgy is incomprehensible. It is too difficult for our days. It does not speak to the hearts of our youth. Maybe we can get to them with some Christian rock music. Let's use acoustic guitars in the church. Let's use pop music. So pop music enters the church. Guitars and drums and a theater-like atmosphere. And the first time or two, they may pack them in. However, the kids can find this sort of entertainment outside the church and even much more exciting, so they don't step in in the church walls ever again. And the criteria is this. You packed in all these people in the church. Now, where did you bring them? What is the church? What is the church? Just four walls? Great. You managed to pull these people in the church. But the church is the body of Christ. It is not a building with four walls. You incorporated all these masses in the body of Christ to embody the world to incorporate the masses in the body of Christ, it means to make the people alive members of the church, to offer them salvation, to save them. Does this music save people? Let alone some of the contemporary sermons, especially in the radio, you will hear some terribly strange and tasteless things, new ideas, what sermons, forget it. And all these things was a way to attract the world. Why all these experiments? And the end result is the ridicule of the faith. The faith becomes a laughing matter. We ridicule our faith and we don't even realize it. This is the result of this mania to modernize and synchronize elements that do not take to modernization. There are some elements that can be changed according to the form of each age. But we cannot go beyond these basic things. For example, the structure of our church buildings can change. The materials have changed. We may use electricity now in addition to candles. All these modern elements do not harm anything. Now to bring in pop music or to hold dances in our church halls, and this is quite prevalent unfortunately in the Orthodox churches of diaspora, when at times the church hall is directly below the sanctuary or the temple, and the young teenagers will be dancing and carrying on, as our teenagers often do, only to wake up the next morning, if they wake up, and attend divine liturgy in the same building that were dancing the night before. And I know the reasoning is, well, how else can we succeed to hold on to our children? How else are we going to keep them Orthodox Christians? The question is, is this going to make them Orthodox Christians? Does this relate to their salvation? What am I doing to save this person? This is what counts. This is what carries weight. Constantine Papadopoulos, our Greek historian, often quoted this, While all nations need to look ahead to gain progress, the Greek nation, in order to see progress, must look back. What did he mean by this? That as Greek Orthodox, we must look back. The Greek nation must look and turn back to its roots, towards its history. Do you see all the inside political struggle to destroy our roots, to destroy our history, to destroy our identity? This is happening in our days. 
There's a tremendous front within to level our past, our history, our roots. If we destroy our roots, we will not see much progress. Certainly not. The same holds true for our church. Now, don't call me an incurable and incorrigible conservative. This is the reality of things. As I am speaking to you, I'm not being progressive or conservative. I'm not any of these things. I only see the reality of things. I'm being realistic. Someone can come to some conclusions by carefully observing the chain of events and the different consequences. It is quite simple. The same holds true as we said in the area of the church. For the church to be rejuvenated, it must look towards its treasures, towards its deposited traditions, towards its springs. That's where the church must turn, to its fathers. And from there, she will take what is pure, authentic, and true to renew itself. Based on this, we could say that renewal does not mean the elimination and alteration of every previous element and the development of new theological theories and so on, or the quest of new ideas and new methodologies, shapes, and forms. We often fall to the temptation of wanting to come up with new sermons to use in our ministries and church activities. But true renewal is to search and theologize and utilize the existing sources. This that already exists, deposited and available, this gold, I must dig deeper to discover and to offer it as gold, always the same. This is the meaning of renewal. If you will, we do have a great experiment on this. This was tried by the Russians of the diaspora, the Orthodox Russians, the educated, the intellectuals. When they left Russia, they developed schools, institutes, and they were writing and publishing books. They did nothing new. They simply took the church fathers and brought them to light. Their response was amazing. When Vladimir Lossky wrote the mystical theology of the Eastern Orthodox Church, this tremendous and most powerful book, which has been translated in Greek as well, I recommend to anyone of you who can read it, you will see in his bibliography, St. Isaac the Syrian, and a great deal of references on St. Maximus the Confessor, but especially St. Isaac the Syrian, the ascetic. When Vladimir Lossky presented this book in Paris, he published it in French first. The entire intellectual Europe was amazed. The European readers were saying, so this is orthodoxy? This is orthodoxy. This information that was always there, always in the safe deposit box of the church, which the Russian theologians took out of hiding, they worked it, translated it, and presented it. This which was deposited from the synods, the words of the fathers and the holy scriptures interpreted by the fathers of our church. That is all. It shines and it amazes as long as it is offered in its pure state, in its entirety, without falsehoods and innovations, pure. I also find it necessary to tell you that this renewal was perceived by the people of worldly thinking has terrible consequences. Even though I stated one example previously, I would also like to add this. When we begin to come up with innovations or reductions or renewals and reconsiderations, 
then we begin to lose the measures and criteria of the truth. And then we have an immediate fall into secularization. This goes along with another theory of our days called relative ethics or circumstantial ethics. It has to do with a certain type of dialogue which takes place in the area of faith. A type of dialogue that goes on like this. You have your point of view, I have mine. So we discuss things and we end up with a new point of view which needs to be taken up for discussion and future discussions and we hold conferences and we reach a stalemate, we remove and subtract and we somehow end up with some common ground and you know how the way of the dialogue works. This is how we carry our dialogue proceedings today. We follow these proceedings while attempting to renew and to freshen up the church and the faith. But I told you that this only results into a very quick vertical drop of measures and criteria. I will only point out one classic example of this, which you heard me repeat a number of times. Many years ago, and this evil is getting worse by the day, by the way, but many years ago, when we were hearing that the Archbishop of Canterbury took part in the amnesty of homosexuality, we said, I personally said, and this before, the, before 1960, I said, now I'm sure this man is very well schooled. No doubt he has a number of degrees from prominent universities. He's certainly wise. He has read sociology books, histories of religion. I'm sure he has done all these things. My question is, did this man ever open the Holy Scriptures to read what the Bible says about this sin of homosexuality? That this is not a disease, but a sin? The question is, why couldn't he see it as a sin? Doesn't he open the Scriptures? This is my question. I hope you can answer it for me. I believe you may also have the same question. Very simply, when the method of dialogue enters the area of faith, then the loss of the criterion of the truth takes place. Everything becomes relative and negotiable. This is the key and the answer to the above question. This is the horrible consequence when we attempt to modify and modernize the faith. Did you follow me? Do you understand this? Here, tradition does not mean fossilization, but tradition is alive. It is life and continuation of life. I should not avoid to tell you about a new trend and another one of these new theories. This new theory is called the repetition of truth. Do you know what this theory may mean? Let's listen. At this moment, there is a denomination in Larsa of Pentecostals, and they are appearing by the name of H-O-E, Hoe, or C-O-P in English. Christian Organization of Peace under the Hasiotis Brothers. We have brought this up many times and we certainly hope that none of you ever step inside their doors. I have warned you a number of times so no one will be deceived by their heresies. Now if you question them, what is it that you want to accomplish more than the Orthodox Church that baptized you? Aren't you satisfied with what the Church has to offer? They will answer you and this answer is usually common among most of the heretical offshoots, Jehovah Witnesses and the 
Protestant denominations, their argument is that they want to return to the early church as described in the Acts of the Apostles and the roots of Christianity. They claim that things in the Christian world are falling apart, so they want to get back to the roots, and they attempt to do this by reading the Acts of the Apostles, and this shows how the early Christians lived, and they try to follow the same lifestyle by simply following the scriptures as they understand them and interpret them. This argument of theirs is quite well known. However, when you go back 2,000 years, you deny the entire tradition of the church, which you claim that he has unraveled. You also reject the fathers of the church, and when you reject tradition, and as you know, the Protestants reject all these things, but when you claim that you want to turn back you have this repetition of the truth. Listen to the logic behind this theory. We moved ahead, we went on and on and on, and we somehow missed our mark. We found ourselves between a rock and a hard place, so we would want to jump with a historical jump, a jump of 2,000 years, if you will. We will like to get back to the beginning if it were possible. Is this jump possible? And then what is the meaning of truth? Truth, my friend, does not necessarily mean antiquity. As it was correctly pointed out, truth is not testes antiquitatis, but testes veritatis. The testimony of the truth is what counts and not the testimony of antiquity. You cannot claim that you will return back to the ancient times because you will find the truth there. The truth is in the tradition of the church. Tradition is an alive organism, an alive organism that breathes, moves, walks, and develops. This is tradition. When you say you will go back, it is like saying, I'm 80 years old, my health is beginning to fail me, so I will deny my past history, and I'll do something, I don't know how, but somehow I will become one year old again. But this is unnatural. It just doesn't work. It is simply unnatural. And the proof that this is unnatural is the fact that we are bored and we want new forms, repetition of truth. Come, everyone, let's go back to the truth. We have the truth. Come and see. And you can see sometimes that those who go find some satisfaction, and they are eager to tell you. The truth is that these people never attempted to get close to the Orthodox Church even though they were baptized to find true happiness and blessedness. And now, when they went to join a heresy, they found some substitutes and they think that this is true happiness. And since tradition is lacking, the result is the crumbling of these faiths into thousands of pieces. So we have thousands of different denominations with one common denominator. They all wanted to return to the testimony of antiquity. Again, the testimony of antiquity is not the key. If you will, the testimony or witness of antiquity is a heresy. Even Arianism is a testimony of antiquity, if you will. The testimony or witness of antiquity is not adequate, but the testimony of the truth. And this testimony of the truth is preserved and kept alive in the saints and the fathers who have the personal experience and the ability to inform us and speak to us. They hold the tradition. 
the Lord said, hold on to what you have. Hold on to the entire paradosis. By to what you have, the Lord means the faith that was passed down, which was also passed down from Christ himself. This verb, hold on, kratisete, in Greek, is a very strong verb. It means hold on very firmly, tenaciously, and not simply keep it in your mind or in your list of priorities, but hold on or something truly alive. When he says, hold on until I come back, this indicates that this which was passed down must be kept unaltered, unblemished, until his second coming. Therefore, it must be held tenaciously without alterations, changes, reductions, and innovations, and adaptations to the worldly scheme of things. My friends, a number of years ago, when I was ordained in the Holy Priesthood, the bishop, after the sanctification of the Holy Gifts, took the Holy Bread from the Discarion, and after I placed my right palm over my left in the shape of a cross, he placed a small flat sponge in my hand, and on this he placed the Lamb, or the Host, or the Body of Christ. And as I was standing there, in front of him, since he just placed the Holy Body of Christ in my hand, he told me these words, which comprise part of the service of ordination. Receive this parakatathiki, this holy deposit, this spiritual treasure, and guard it until the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, at which time it will be demanded by him from you. So receive this parakatathiki, or this holy deposit. What is this holy deposit? The body of Christ, because this was just placed in my hands a couple moments ago. But the body of Christ is the church. So take the church, hold on to the church with all your strength until Christ comes back, until his second coming, because he will be expecting a full report from you on how you handled this holy deposit. My friends, it is of no small significance that during ordination after the sanctification of the precious gifts, the priest takes the body, the precious body, in his hands. He positions himself behind the holy altar until the very end of the divine liturgy, up until Holy Communion. This is quite a long time that he must keep his hands in front of him holding the precious body. Many times he shakes and the holy body is in danger of falling. He has nothing to lean on, nothing to lean it on, only his palms. This is symbolic for the priest that he's supposed to hold on to this deposit, the very body of Christ, the church, until the end of his life. He must keep this responsibly, and as a priest, he must stay true to this parakatathiki and not ever spurn this great treasure. This, my friends, is quite profound and moving, and as much as I can, I try to keep a clear conscience. I would like to offer you a true message, an orthodox sermon, to tell you the truth and to always keep telling you the truth, because the Lord entrusted me with this parakatathiki, in other words, his church. And this holy deposit is thus entrusted to every member of the clergy. 
and we must return it to his hands, immaculate and unblemished. Do you understand our awesome responsibility? Being a member of the priesthood is not a title of honor. It is a great responsibility, an awesome responsibility. I repeat, a great responsibility. But we also notice that the Lord says this, I will not place any other burden on you. I'm not placing any other burden on you. And his gospel is certainly a burden. It requires toil and work. But he reassures us about this in his gospel. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. When is the yoke of the Lord easy and when is his burden light? When we truly desire our salvation. Any orthodox sermon and a tradition of our church was handed down to us and he who told us to hold it well, all these things make up the sermon of our salvation.